Our study of Hebrews takes us to Hebrews chapter 11. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. For by it the elders obtained a good report. Through faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God, so that things which are seen were not made of things which do appear. By faith Abel offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, by which he obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts, and by it he being dead, yet speaketh. By faith Enoch was translated, that he should not see death, and was not found, because God had translated him. For before his translation he had this testimony that he pleased God. But without faith it is impossible to please him, for he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. I think that's about where we stopped last week. And of course, mentioned last time we met for class, we mentioned the fact that in Hebrews 11, it is probably, to me, it's impossible, really, to overlook the fact that every one of these people mentioned in Hebrews 11 uh, acted out, or let's say acted upon their faith. By faith, they did whatever it was they did, applying to the particular person. Noah built an ark in verse 7. But by faith, these people acted on their faith. And so their faith was accompanied then by obedience. It was accompanied by action. Uh, God has saved us by His grace. But never mind the fact that He has saved us by grace, there is still something for us to do. There, we have our part in our salvation. Now that doesn't mean that we've earned it. That doesn't mean that it's no longer of grace. It just means that the only type of faith that will save is an active, obedient faith. You might ask, then, how is it that God saves us by His grace? We kind of discussed this last week, I think. God saved us by grace, really by telling us what to do to be saved. And then it's up to us whether we're going to do that or not. So verse 7, by faith, Noah being warned of God of things not seen as yet, Moved with fear, prepared an ark to the saving of his house, by the which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness, which is uh, by faith. So by faith, Noah. Now, was Noah saved by grace? Genesis, the sixth chapter, said, when it's speaking of all of the evil in the world, but yet in Genesis, the sixth chapter, God's announcing that he's going to destroy the world by a flood because of the extent of the evil in the world. But it also tells us in Genesis, the sixth chapter, that Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. So that <clears throat> tells me then that grace really has always been a part of the nature of God. It's always been part of the characteristic of God. Sometimes people want to look at the, uh, the Old Testament and say, you know, God used to be a God of law. And now he's a God of grace. Uh, I don't know of anything that could be further from the truth in that. God is has always had a law for mankind, but he's always been a God of grace as well. And you see that as early as Genesis, the sixth chapter, even before the law of Moses, God's a God of grace. Uh, today, God is a God who has grace as a part of his nature. But he, again, he extends his grace. I guess you could say he extends his grace to everyone. That is, he, he offers it to everyone. But only those who respond with an obedient faith will receive that grace. Uh, but even though God is a uh, God of grace today, we still have law today, do we not? 
I mean, if there were no law today, there would in fact be no sin. So, by faith Noah, being warned of God, of things not seen as yet, probably a reference to the fact that God is telling Noah he's going to destroy the world by a flood, and I, I think we can probably say that up to that point it hadn't rained before. And so he's being warned of God of things not seen as yet. He moved with fear. All right, now, um, what is the fear here? He says, moved with fear. Uh, no doubt it is an attitude of fear and respect for God and what he has said, but I would also say it's probably uh, would also include simply being afraid of what would happen if you don't follow God's commandments. You're going to be afraid of the coming judgment, afraid of the punishment, afraid, let's put it this way, you sh he would be afraid of the consequences of not obeying. I wish today more people would be afraid. And this whole idea that fear is not a good motivator, uh, why not? I know the Bible says perfect love cast out fear. We should grow as Christians and we should get to the point where we do what we do out of love for God, out of a desire to please God. But that doesn't mean we should ever quit being afraid of hell either. We certainly need to be afraid of the consequences of disobedience. Something that you need to always understand in that verse there in John where it says perfect love cast out all fear is that you'll never have perfect love. Uh, a perfect idea of complete, mature, let's say. Okay, but, uh, but again, we, sh we should never get to the point where, where we no longer fear the consequences of disobeying God. Uh, and so Noah moved with fear. Uh, he prepared an ark. So was Noah saved by grace? He was certainly saved by grace. Was Noah prepared, uh, was he uh, saved rather without doing anything on his part? I mean, without any type of action on it? Of course, the Bible tells us he prepared an ark, and that's uh, without doing that, without building the ark, he wouldn't have been saved. He prepared an ark. Notice he said, why did he prepare this ark? Why did he build it? Well, he tells us in verse 7, it's to the saving of his house, by which he condemned the world. Now, how did, how did Noah condemn the world? Well, through Noah's preaching. Remember, he wasn't just building an ark for all of this time. Uh, he was actually preaching, trying to encourage others to repent as well. And they became heir of the righteousness, which is by faith. You, I'm sure you've heard a lot of sermons preached, a lot of lessons taught on the ark, and how ar an ark is in some ways, the ark was in some ways a type of the church, with the church being the antitype. You know, there's one ark. You know, Noah didn't build a, a multiplicity of arks and then decide which one he wanted to get in. You know, there's one ark. Uh, there's no one saved outside the ark at the time of the flood. No one saved today outside the Lord's church. Uh, there's only one church. God was very specific in giving Noah a pattern for the ark. Uh, he's given us a pattern for the church today, and some want to downplay the importance of that, but uh, he's given us a pattern for the church today, and when you veer from that pattern, of course, well, not, God's not going to accept what you've done. So you look at, um, look at the characteristics of uh, the ark, and you can draw parallels between that and the church, and with that in mind, we're going to take a little side trip for, to 1 Peter, the third chapter, because um, 1 Peter chapter 3 kind of deals with this issue of, of Noah and the ark. And, of course, it, he's, he's, he's talking about Noah uh, and the ark there and the judgment that came upon those people. 
And it's within that context that he says what he does in verse 21 about baptism. So he's drawn the parallels. It's not like he just talked about baptism in verse 21, kind of after like a side note or an afterthought. But he's leading up to that, beginning in verse 18 of 1 Peter chapter 3. For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. Well, that's why Christ died, wasn't it? To bring us to God. Not really to bring God to us either. To reconcile us back to God, but not really by bringing God to us so much as bringing us to God. All right, for Christ, uh, see, we're, think about it even today. We're, we're, we're baptized into Christ, 1 Corinthians twelve thirteen. So it's not the other way around. Sometimes people want to pray in order to be saved. They want to pray for Christ to come into their heart. It's the other way around. We need to be in Christ. And so we're baptized into Christ, 1 Corinthians twelve thirteen. But he tells us now in verse 18, For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring the just, that is Christ, being the sinless one, being the just one, and he's suffering for us, the unjust, the one who has sin in our lives, that he might bring us to God. Now Christ, it says in verse 18, being put to death in the flesh, that is his body died, See, sometimes people today, and, and I mean people in even, you know, the church sometimes, people in the church, we can look at ourselves uh, incorrectly, I believe, and we want to say, you know, we're, we're physical beings with a spirit. And it's really the other way around. We're spiritual beings, temporary living in this physical body. And when a person dies, it's that physical body that dies. Uh, the person continues to exist, does he not? So he's telling us in verse 18, and being put to death in the flesh. His body died, but he was quickened by the Spirit, brought to life again uh, by the Spirit. And that was evidence, Romans, I think Romans 5, that he was in fact the Son of God. Now notice in verse 19, a verse here that has given a lot of people a lot of difficulty and trouble. And you hear all kinds of things preached from this. Um, I'll just explain it to me. Uh, I'll explain it to me. I'll explain it tonight in a way that I think makes most sense. It's the way I think it means anyhow. After looking at a lot of different ways, the way I think it makes most sense. Look at verse 19. By which also he went and preached into the spirits in prison. So some people say, well, you know, when Christ died, he died in the flesh, verse 18. And when he died, where was Christ these three days before he was raised again? He went to, um, well, hell, some would say, probably more, uh, probably more properly say Hades, but actually neither one's proper because it's not true anyway. But they would say, well, he went, to people, he went to the people in Hades and he preached to those people, okay, in prison. That is while he, uh, in this interval between the time of his death and his resurrection, Christ went and he preached to the spirits in prison. Well, a lot of questions come up with that. And, uh, you know, I emphasize over and over again, a lot of, lot of Bible study involves common sense. <laughs> it's just common sense. It, it doesn't take a, a, a deep biblical scholar to think about some of these things. If he did that, if he went and preached during the three days, number one is, why? I mean, why preach to them? If there's no opportunity to change and repent after you die, why preach to them? And along with that, if he did, why preach? Well, then what was he preaching to them? See, there's no point in this, is there? 
Then also, if he, uh, if he did that, why would he be preaching only to those people instead of everyone? But if you have a New American Standard in verse 19, it really, really brings the point out in verse 19, by which also he went and preached unto the spirits now in prison. The point is that he's talking about people who were in prison, that is in the prison of Hades, at the time that Peter wrote. Peter's saying Christ preached to those people who are now in the prison of Hades, but Christ preached. All right, did this preaching take place at the time of Noah? Yes, it did. But how did Christ do it? Remember the Bible tells us Noah was a what? He was, somebody says he was an ark builder. Noah was a preacher of righteousness. And he was preaching, encouraging people to repent. I think the best understanding of this is that Christ was preaching to the people of Noah's day, encouraging them to repent. Christ was preaching through the agency of Noah. And that makes perfect sense. Elsewhere you read about Christ uh, in the book of Ephesians. You read about Christ as he was preaching to the Gentiles. But yet he never went to the Gentiles. See? He did, but he did that through his disciples as they preached. And so whenever you do something through the agency of another person, it's said that you did it. Does that make sense? So Christ, verse 19 the time between the announcement of the flood and the time of the flood, Christ preached to those people. He did that through the agency of Noah, and those people, in verse 19, were now, at the time Peter wrote, in prison of Hades. And Christ preached unto them. Notice verse 20, which sometime were disobedient, when once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah. See, he's preaching to these people who were disobedient, where once the long-suffering of God, that is the patience of God, waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being built or preparing, wherein few, that is, eight souls were saved by water. And some people today will say, well, we're not saved by water. <laughs> well, these people of Noah's day, and actually these people of Noah's day, actually Noah and his family, that's all it was, was those eight souls, they were saved by water. Were they not? Well, the Bible says they were. They were saved by water. In what way or how? We know the water doesn't have the power in itself to save. But look at verse 21. The like figure, whereunto even baptism, doth also now save us. You've probably heard at one time or another, and I have heard at multiple times, denominational preachers in the pulpit plainly, confidently, boldly, but also incorrectly, I might add, but plainly, confidently, and boldly state, baptism does not save you. Evidently, Peter didn't understand that, did he? So who are you going to believe? The denominational preachers of today or the inspired writer? Peter. Well, I'm going to go with Peter. But he says, the like figure, whereunto even baptism does also now save you. It's not the putting away the filth of the flesh. We understand it's not, it's not like a, a being cleansed by this water. We understand that. It's but the answer of a good conscience toward God. Now that's reading from the King James, but the answer of a good conscience toward God. 
Again, if you read this from the New American Standard or the, Eng the English Standard Version, uh, it has more of the ideal is that baptism, instead of answer of a good conscience, is like baptism and is an appeal to God. In fact, the New King James really hits the nail on the head on this one. Because if you read it from the New King James, I can't quote it from the New King James. Seb, do you have the New King James? But the answer of a good conscience toward God. Okay, but, what, okay, but what, what does it say the first part of the verse instead of figure? There is also an antitype. That nails it, you see. Baptism is the antitype. Now, what is an antitype? It basically corresponds to the type in the Old Testament, the type and the antitype. And it's, it has a spiritual significance to it. And so that, uh, the, the judgment of Noah's day and the ark, really, is a type. Baptism is your antitype. It corresponds to that. Now, the it's not necessarily unfortunate that the King James uses the word figure instead of anodyne. I think ESV says something like there is now corresponding to that or something along those lines. But because the King James says the like figure, I've had people tell me, oh, listen, baptism is figurative. That's all it is. It's just figurative. Baptism, in fact, so why are you baptized? If it's simply figure, why are they baptized? Well, they'll tell you it's a... It's an outward sign of an inward grace. And we're, we're, uh, bapti we're baptized basically and to show others that we've been saved. Now, interestingly enough, if you go on and, and talk to them about it some more, you know, read what they put out and what they write, they're also baptized to become a part of that church. They're baptized to enter into the church. It's interesting, isn't it, that they're saved without being baptized. But they can't be in their church without being baptized. I don't try to be funny with any of this. I say it with all seriousness and kindness. It's harder to be a Baptist than it is to go to heaven. Because they put more requirements on being in their Baptist church than they do on going to heaven. You can be saved without being baptized. You're not saved. Baptism doesn't save you. But it does allow you to become a part of this denomination. Again, some common sense. You don't have to be a big scholar to understand this. All right, but, all right, baptism, verse 21 then, is like an appeal to God. And I think that even helps us understand what it means to call out to God or call on the name of the Lord. Remember in Acts 22, 16, Why tarriest thou, rise and be baptized and wash away thy sins? calling on the name of the Lord. And that's what he's doing here is making an appeal to God for a good conscience. How do you have this good conscience? When your sin and the guilt of sin is washed away, that happens at baptism. Now, he tells us in verse 21, eight souls were saved by water. Verse 20, in verse 20, eight souls were saved by water. Verse 21, the like figure. Baptism is a like figure. It's really the antitype to the type. Now, there is certainly a certain figurative aspect to baptism. Well, I wouldn't deny that. But that doesn't mean that it has no real substance. Remember, we're saved by grace, just as in Noah's day. We're saved by grace in that because of God's grace, he tells us what to do to be saved. 
And people will say, well, back in those days, those people weren't saved by the water. The ones in the water are the ones that drowned. The point is that in Noah's day, though, even in Noah's day, the water was a line of demarcation or a dividing line, whatever you want to call it. Basically, the uh, water was a line of demarcation between the saved and the lost. And as the water of the flood lifted the ark and those in it, it lifted them above destruction of the world. It lifted them above the evil of the world, did it not? And so in that sense, verse 20, they were saved by water. I'm sure if you could talk to Peter today and ask him, was there any kind of special powers in the water? Was there something special about the waters of this flood? I'm sure Peter would say, no, no, the power wasn't in the water. The power was in God and his power to save. But here's the point. Baptism, like building the ark of Noah's day, today baptism is the point at which we are saved. Not before, not after either. But baptism is the point at which we are saved. And that's why he's able to say they were saved by water. I've never heard a preacher in the church, and I know we may have been accused of this, but I've never heard a preacher in the church say there's just something about the water in this baptism, in this baptistry, that it just has this power to wash away your sins. That is the water itself. You know, it's still H2O, is it not? Uh, It's water. It comes out of the same water, I suppose, that the rest of the building does, doesn't it? It comes out of the same place, I mean, that the rest of it, it's water. But in a way, you could look at it as a test of a person's faith. You know, in the time of the flood, before the flood, God said every intended man was truly evil Man was completely and entirely evil except for the eight people that got off the ark. The eight people that got off the ark. The water washed away the evil of the world. It did exact, it does the exact same thing that it did, does for us in the watery grave. It washes away the sin of our conscience. It washed, literally washed away the sin of the world. That's how it saved those eight people. It's how it's saved. All right, we're, we're saved today by God's grace. We're saved by the blood of Christ. All of those things, we understand that. We're saved by hope, as far as that goes. The Bible teaches that as well. We're saved by all of those things. But again, God will tell us, He has told us, here's what you do to be saved. Now it's up to man to decide whether he's going to respond in an obedient faith. Or he might say, you know, that just doesn't even make sense to me. Uh, I, you know, in fact, there's one man that taught we're saved by faith alone. I think, uh, well, uh, several taught that. Martin Luther was one of the big proponents of that idea. That's why he didn't even believe the book of James was inspired, really. He called it a, a right, strawy epistle, something to that effect. And he didn't even believe it was inspired. And so he was pushing his doctrine of, of, of uh, faith alone. But let's go back to Hebrews 11. fact is, Noah was saved because of his obedience faith. And the water separated the saved from the lost. That's true today. The waters of baptism separate uh, the saved from the lost. Uh, by faith Abraham, verse 8, when he was called to go out into a place which he should have to receive for an inheritance, obeyed. And he went out. See, look at verse 8. Circle the word faith in your Bible and circle the word obeyed. 
In fact, it's interesting, some of the times you, you read from the American Standard Version of 1901, it will use the words faith and obey or faith and obedience uh, uh, interchangeably there in some of the portions of the translation. But notice in verse 8, he went out not knowing whether he went. Fellas, how would you like to go home one day and tell your wife you're moving? Well, okay. You know, I mean, you don't ask her, you know, or you don't even discuss it. You just tell her you're moving. Where are we moving? I don't know. God will let us know. But we're moving. Uh, but how do you do this by faith? And remember in chapter 11, we're never talking about a blind faith. A leap in the dark. That's not a good way to describe biblical faith. Verse 9, by faith he sojourned, not blind faith. I know he says he didn't know where he was going. But it's not a faith without evidence. See, it's a faith in verse 6 that believe that God does exist and then they believe that God is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. God's going to keep his promises. Verse 8, by faith Abraham, when he was called to go out in a place which he should after receive for an inheritance, obeyed, and he went out, not knowing whether he went. By faith he sojourned in the land of promise, as in a strange country, dwelling in tabernacles with Isaac and Jacob, and the heirs of him, uh, with him of the same promise. For he looked for a city which foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Through faith also Sarah herself received strength to conceive seed, and was delivered of a child when she was past age, because she judged him faithful who had promised. Well, I thought, I thought Sarah didn't believe. Did Sarah believe or not believe? It seemed like initially she didn't believe. She laughed, did she not? But then, really, the response to her laughter let her know that, in fact, this message was from God and it would happen. And so that's why they're able to say in verse 11, she judged him faithful and promised. Therefore sprang there even a one, and him as good as dead, uh, talking about his age, his up in years, so many as the stars of the sky in multitude, and as the sand which is by the seashore innumerable. Who are the children of Abraham today? See, are you a child of Abraham today? Well, sure, sure you are. Notice verse 13. These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off. You, you and I have ex really experienced them, though, than that. We are children of Abraham. We are in the church today. We've, we, we have experienced that now. But he said, But having seen them afar off and persuaded of men and embraced them and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. If you're writing notes somewhere, pilgrims, you might put, I believe, 1 Peter 1, 17 as well. A number of times the Bible talks about us as being strangers, sojourners, pilgrims, I really, really wish I knew how to bring that point across to people today more than I do. Did I say that correctly? I wish I knew how to do that more. To get people to understand that you're just a pilgrim here. And particularly young people here. You think, I don't mean young people here. I mean young people everywhere, you know. I wish I could get them to understand that. Remember in Matthew 13, the parable of the sower and some kind of sprang up for a little while, but what happened to some of it? Remember it was, it was choked. And Bible tells us it was choked by the cares 
and the riches of this world. And when it's talking about cares of the world, I don't think that's limited to sins of the world. I think it's just limited to the cares of the world. Uh, Life has so, so many distractions. And people want to do these things. And they're not, they're not bad. I mean, you know, they're, they're not bad. I'm not even saying that. But people think about they want to advance their careers. They want to buy this house. They want to take this vacation. They want to do this, 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 this. And people become so choked up in that. That that pretty much takes up all their time, their attention, their energy, and most of all, it simply draws their focus away from heaven and away from God. Um, you know, when you're dead, you've left it all behind. And even your, compliment, uh, even your accomplishments that you had while here on earth don't really matter after you're dead, do they? except for those accomplishments of a spiritual nature. People who win awards for different things, they get, you know, promotions at work. It doesn't matter, does it? In the long run, I mean, in the long run. Uh, I know you've all had a day. You've had more than one day like this, I'm sure. It's like you have to make a to-do list. And on this to-do list, you, you'll, you usually have one thing at the top. It's like, man, if I don't get anything else done today, i got to do this. Now, if I get this, I'll work on these other things. But I'm not going to work on these other things until I get this done. If I don't do anything else today, if I don't accomplish anything else, I'm going to accomplish this one thing at the top of my list. I think that's kind of what Paul was getting at it when he wrote to the church at Philippi. And he said, this one thing... I do. It's like Paul's making a to-do list for life. Not for a day. But he's making a to-do list for his life. And it's like he's saying, if I don't get anything else accomplished in life, it's one thing I'd do. Because he knew he's just a pilgrim. He's just a sojourner. And if I don't get, I hope that for me, but I hope for every one of you here, if we don't get anything else accomplished in life, let's do this one thing and be in heaven when we die. And if you've accomplished that, in reality, you accomplish the only thing that really matters. Yeah. I mean, it is the only thing that really matters. I see it all the time. I hear families talk, and it's like everything, you know, they, they, they want to talk about what he did in his lifetime and what he accomplished in his lifetime and what are we going to do with this stuff and all this it doesn't matter anymore, does it? But there's one thing that does matter. Where is that person spending eternity? So that's why we read uh, that they were strangers in verse 13 and they were pilgrims. See, strangers even. Strangers kind of like, I don't know how to paraphrase this. If you're a stranger, it's kind of like, you're not from around here, are you? And you might even say some things are strange to you. Um, see, this world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. My treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. 
See, the angels beckon me from heaven's open door and I can't feel at home in this world anymore. Oh, Lord, you know I have no friend like you. See, if heaven's not my home, then Lord, what will I do? The angels beckon me from heaven's open door and I can't feel at home in this world anymore. That should be our attitude. I don't feel at home here. Are you comfortable here? Just when I think things can't get any weirder, and I shouldn't be even reading the news, because every time I think things couldn't get any weirder, I read something, and you know what? They got weirder. I, I, I read a phrase today, a term. I never heard this before. I wish I could... Uh, I can't even remember the term exactly now, but it kind of related to this transgender and all this. This person said they were, um, can't, I'm sorry, I can't remember the term. But basically they're saying their sex, their gender rather, was always changing. It's not that just they were transgender and went one from one to the other, which by the way is not possible. But they said they're just always changing. I mean, man, you talk about confused. And you see all these things. And you see all the things going on on a daily basis. Do you feel comfortable here? Do you feel at home in this world? We ought to, every one of us, be able to say, this world is not my home. I'm just passing through. I'm just a pilgrim, verse 13. But I've got a better place to go to. That's why Paul says to die is gain. To die is gain. You've probably heard me mention before somebody kids another person about, well, I see you had another birthday, old man. And it's my it's kind of a pet peeve of mine, I'll admit, when the person will say, Well, it's better than the alternative. I think if another year on this earth is better than the alternative, you need to change the way you're living. Because for us, the alternative should be heaven. Another year on this earth is better than heaven. Not hardly. Uh, so that should be the alternative for us. Verse 14, I quit teaching and went to preaching, didn't I? Verse 14, for they that say such things declare plainly that they seek a country. And truly, if they had been mindful of that country from which they came out, they might have had opportunity to have returned. Oh, but we're not to look back, are we? But now they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly, wherefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he hath prepared for them a city. By faith Abraham, when he was tried, offered up Isaac, and he that had received the promises offered up his only begotten son, back in Genesis 22, of whom it was said that in Isaac shall thy seed be called, accounting that God was able to raise him up, even from the dead, from whence also... He received him in a figure. By faith Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau concerning things to come. By faith Jacob, when he was a dying, blessed both the sons of Joseph and worshiped, leaning upon the top of his staff. Um, yeah, that's, a, that's an interesting phrase there. And the staff could even mean the, uh, the, the staff, depending on how you translate that, could even mean like a bed, like the head of a bed, believe it or not, the headboard of a bed, something like that. Verse 22, by faith Joseph, when he died, made mention of the departing of the children of Israel. And he gave commandment concerning his bones. Read that in the last part of Genesis. See, By faith Moses, when he was born, was hid three months of his parents because they saw that he was a proper child and they were not afraid of the king's commandment. 
By faith, Moses, when he was come to years, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Uh, just real quick, Moses had a choice to make. And he made the right choice, did he not? But verse 24, he refused to be called the son of the Pharaoh's daughter. Understanding the privileges that he would have had, uh, all of the benefits of that, but verse 25, he chose rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season, esteeming, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he had respect unto the recompense of the reward. Another way of looking at verse 26, if you want to paraphrase that, he esteemed the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt because he thought long term. Again, don't you wish people today would think long term instead of just the here and now. Somebody has said eternity is just too long to be wrong. Think about it. Eternity is too long to be wrong. There's no second chance. No, t no time to repent after you die. Uh, no time to go from one place to another. And so he looked long term and by faith he forsook Egypt not fearing the wrath of the king for he endured as seeing notice as seeing him who is invisible if you want you go right to 2nd Corinthians 5 7 with that we walk by faith not by sight actually you can write almost the whole 2nd uh, Corinthians chapter 4 and 5 as far as that goes especially the latter portion of chapter 4 as it discusses about focusing on the invisible things of this world um through faith he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of blood, lest he that destroyed the firstborn should touch him. Uh, we're going to stop there at verse 29. Our time's about up. Um, next time we meet, we'll look at Hebrews 11, 29. And should finish the 11th chapter, surely.